0: I'm feeling fancy and full of delight. Let's turn the dialogue. The clip you're hearing comes from our guest night. today.
1: She's got an amazing voice, an amazing story, and I
0: can't wait for you to
1: hear more. So let's dive in.
0: Welcome to the Envision
1: Rise podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Haggerty, Vice President of Equity and Inclusion for Envision Rise. Today, we have Andromeda Ture, musician and founder of Growing Up Jazz. I love when we do these kinds of episodes that are focused more on the arts. Uh, This is our first jazz musician we've had join us on the podcast. So welcome, Andromeda. We're glad you're here. Thank you.
0: I'm so excited to be
1: here. Well, let's start with introduce yourself to our listeners and for those that might not know who you are and know about your background. I
0: am a jazz vocalist and composer. I grew up in a family of jazz musicians. Both of my parents are jazz musicians. Two of my uncles and one of my aunts, jazz musicians. My brother's a jazz musician. Uh, my grandparents met at a Count Basie concert. Which, if you don't know who that is, he's a jazz musician. <laughs> and I've just sort of spent my entire life immersed in this world.
1: Yeah. So. I- I'm glad you brought up Count Basie, one of my favorite memories with my mom. I was in high school and he he was towards the end of his career at that point. But he, that that concert really changed the way I looked at music especially as a teenager growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania. I didn't have a lot of exposure to jazz and to to see him and to understand the power that his music had and really where jazz came from, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the history of jazz a bit and how it really is the most American form of music.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons why I founded my Growing Up Jazz program is because I saw a gap in the way that jazz history was being taught and also in the way that U.S. history was being taught. And I wanted to meet that need. And I went to Berklee College of Music. I've read a lot of books about jazz, and all of them have jazz starting like in the 1920s in New Orleans. And it didn't just magically appear there. And so there's a whole development, musical development, that happened between when Africans arrived in America and what the music was in Africa before they even came here, and what happened to us as a people that caused the music to evolve, that led to jazz, that also is sort of the oral history of the African experience in America. And that's what I'm teaching.
1: So let's start with the music of Africa and what would we recognize it in, in what people now think of as modern jazz music?
0: Yeah, you'll, you'll recognize the rhythms and stuff, but if you don't know that they specifically come from Africa, then you just don't know that. (laughs) Or like, if you're not taught that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. Right. (laughs) But that's where there's so much um, conversations to be had surrounding um, a lot of DEI hot topics, right? like barriers to access that happened in jazz. And jazz provides a forum within its history to talk about these things in a way that can seem less intimidating and at the same time, extremely obvious. There's a lot of people that don't understand or want to believe in like systemic racism, for example. They don't understand how systems work. And so in showing how this system was built up around jazz and who had power and control and access and what the narratives were and why we think about jazz the way that we do, it sort of explains all of those things.
1: All right, well, now I'm gonna ask you to dive into that a little bit further because you know there's been so much talk about systemic racism. And depending on your knowledge base, depending on your own lived experience, sometimes the reaction that those of us working in diversity, equity, and inclusion space, sometimes that reaction is nope, it doesn't exist. Yeah, so that's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about the how that relates with jazz. And because I do think that art in almost every form is such a great way to not only break down barriers, but to help people understand history in a way that doesn't feel um, so, so hard for some folks to, to understand and to accept as fact.
0: Yeah. I think that systemic racism is extremely hard for a lot of people to see if it doesn't affect them. And a lot of the systems in this country were designed to be invisible because when it's elusive, then it's really hard to get allies to work with you to fight against it. Right. And so, you know, people that don't see it, don't believe it. And if you don't want to see it and you don't want to believe it, then it's even more impossible. But I think music is a great vehicle. For example, if I can show you in my program that the rhythms and the harmonies and everything are unequivocally African, which I go through in my program and you're like, oh yeah, this is clear as day. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you get to the 1920s and the 1930s when jazz becomes like discovered and popularized when they say it becomes popularized. That's really when white Americans discovered it. Mm -hmm. And if you can look at how from then on, which I don't think was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's great. And I think that that, you know, in a lot of ways helped the music to expand and collaborate and like we collaborated then with, we got Latin jazz after that, right? Jazz is very collaborative. I don't necessarily think that that's bad. What happened though, was they needed to build a system around it in order to be able to teach it. They needed to break it down in a way that was teachable and who was deciding how jazz was taught, who was deciding what jazz was when it was being marketed, who were... Mm -hmm. the people that were doing the marketing, who were the people that were the record executives and who were the gatekeepers to power, to being able to share and shape how the world viewed what jazz was. It was not black Americans. And so if you see in part one, that this is absolutely black music and then in part two that we then had no say in the education system the recording system or the marketing system that was built around it it's kind of easy to see systemic racism Mm -hmm. whereas it's often harder for people to see it when we're talking about things like redlining because they take it more personally for some reason but if you don't work in the music industry I think there's a level of separation that happens and they're like well i didn't do that
1: yeah i I think you're right and i think for a lot of us that don't work in the music industry we don't even understand how it works and you know we hear hear bits and pieces of it now as it relates to hip-hop and what was done with hip-hop and rap and how that was kind of the same thing it changed but it's Early on, some of the same things were happening. And going back to to the way that jazz was marketed and kind of formed from a, away from its original audience, I think. Mm-hmm. What kind of impact did that have on the artists and on the way that they went about creating? Was there an impact?
0: Yeah, I think... Even if you look at the jobs that were available, jazz was an opportunity around the time that jazz became popularized. It was not that long after emancipation. There were not a lot of jobs available to African-Americans still at that point. Lena Horne was famous for saying that she like could have been a maid, um, a hooker, or an entertainer. <laughs> so it's like there's there's just wasn't a lot of, of options, right? And so if you had to pick out of the three, I I don't know about you, I would definitely pick entertainment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I felt like they participated in the system in a lot of ways because they didn't have a lot of other better options. Um, If you look at who owned the jazz clubs, most Mm -hmm. of the jazz clubs, right? And especially the ones that paid well, Mm -hmm. it wasn't Mm African-Americans. And so if you wanted to play at those venues, you had to play music that white people wanted to hear. So you had to change maybe how you were playing it a little bit to accommodate the audience that had the power, mm. right? And they, the audience didn't even necessarily realize that that's what was happening. But Duke Ellington has a famous song called "It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. The reason why they say it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing is because if you couldn't keep the audience dancing all night long, you didn't get paid at the end of the night.
1: Oh, I didn't (laughs) see that. All right, I'm gonna listen to that song differently now.
0: Oh, yeah, it's still like a great fun song, but it's like, hey, this was reality. And a lot of the documentaries that you see on jazz, you'll see um, like Chick Webb playing at the Savoy Ballroom they don't show that he had to go in through the back door they don't show that he probably wasn't allowed to use the restroom or mm-hmm. um he didn't get fed or how how he was spoken to and treated and and not respected in those environments i think that also is where there's still sort of an injustice in jazz history and how jazz is told because it's not necessarily african americans that usually have the platform or the access to mm-hmm. share and talk about jazz history or the resources to, like, fund a
1: documentary. Right, right. Um,
0: that's another barrier to access, right? And so I, I think there's some great jazz documentaries out there, but they only tell about half the story. <laughs> and so I would really love to see that start to shift
1: even today as well. Well, let's talk about Growing Up Jazz. What mm-hmm. made you decide to found Growing Up Jazz? What What are the things that you, that your organization does in order to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion through jazz?
0: Well, I started doing DEI work, I guess, in like 2007, 2008, and I was working for a major corporation at the time. And they had provided us with some lyrics to sing that were culturally inappropriate. And I I sort of went to bat and I was like, you got to get some executives on the phone. This is not cool. And I did my first like DEI presentation. I was, I don't know, 24 years old. And I was able to get them to understand and to change um, what was incorrect and culturally irresponsible. And I think that was sort of my first independent foray into DEI work, especially within arts organizations. Um, I grew up in a family of activists as well. My Aunt Gail, in specific, was one who sued for her right to work as a Black violinist. If you ever heard of the blind auditions that they used to have um, in orchestras and Broadway shows, those are the jobs that come with things like a pension. They come with things like health insurance. They come with benefits and they pay better than just like little bar gigs. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an artist like my aunt who's gone to Juilliard, you are qualified to get those jobs. But because she was both Black and female, they wouldn't hire her in the 70s. So she sued. Actually, she had to sue twice to get blind auditions passed where they had to audition with a screen so they couldn't see who was performing and they could only hire based on what they heard. And then she got hired right away. No problem. So I sort of came from this background and I watched her work. And even after that, she continued to fight for things to get better and fight for women and other minorities um, within the space of music. And I sort of had my DEI training (laughs) from a very young age, just like helping her and watching her. And then I decided to go to Cornell when they had their um, DEI certification program just to sort of update and see how things are managed in today's world. Um, And I think that combined with my lived experience as a Black woman living in America, um, but also a mixed race Black woman, like half of my family is white, uh, a lot of Republicans on that side. And I love my entire family and learned how to sort of bridge the gap between the black side of my family, which are like liberal civil rights activists, and the right, the the right side of my family, right? Right <laughs> way, more right wing. So um I mean not everybody on on that side is over there, but you know, I had contrasting perspectives and contrasting worldviews and just being able to sort of understand where everybody was coming from and grow up loving sort of contrasting people with contrasting views, I think has also been extremely helpful in bridging a gap. Mm
1: -hmm. We talk so so much about that bridging of gaps and um, for a lot of people, they hear DEI, they hear diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the first reaction some people have is, oh, that's so divisive. And really what we're talking about is what you're saying, bridging the gap and embracing all the people are. And that difference makes the world of much more interesting place <laughs> perhaps not a kinder place sometimes but a much more interesting place yeah i
0: mean i grew up in america right and i i studied history in america in the 80s when i was in school and so i learned us history the same way a lot of people my age did the difference is that my parents then gave me books to read when i came home that and i grew up in jazz where like i had a front row seat to learning the history a different kind of way is often told by those who are in power. And so you get 50% of the story. And I was fortunate enough to be given the other half of the story um, through the way that I grew up, both growing up jazz and through like The books you see over here, this is the International Library of Negro Negro Life and History. This is the Reference Library of Black America. Like these, these are the kind of books I was given these in high school and I still have them. And it just gave me, you know, I learned about more than just Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. Right, right. Every year for (laughs) the shortest month of the year. Right. And so. I don't necessarily blame people that don't understand because they weren't taught to understand and that's not their fault. But I do think that, um, it takes an open heart to be able to try to listen. And I've run into so many people in the DEI work that I've done, especially outside of music that do see DEI as not being inclusive because they can't see the systemic injustice. I worked for about two years as the chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the town where I live. And I had several people who said, you know, the DEI committee is not diverse because you don't have any straight white Republicans on your DEI committee. Well, none signed up. Right. That w- It wasn't like we told them they couldn't just. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll start there. No, No straight white Republicans asked to be on the DEI committee. But if you look at our town's demographics, who has all the power? Who sits on the town board? Who sits on all the boards, commissions and committees in the town? Who is writing the newspapers? Who do you see in the newspapers? Who do you see in all of the marketing that is done about our town? It's straight white people, Mm -hmm. a lot of whom are Republicans. But the point is that there is nobody that looks like me. <laughs> right. And so if you've got about 30 boards, commissions, and committees that hold the power, and there's one that has any diversity on it, we're, the, we're adding diversity. So mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need that perspective because that perspective is already present. Mm-hmm. It already holds all the power, and it already has a narrative that is understood, we're here to give you a different option and we're adding diversity. And I think that's something that people need to understand. It's diversity isn't like necessarily everybody has to have a seat at the table because you already have the table, the chair and the building that it's in.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that, that, what you, that statement you just made about you know, a narrative that's already understood. Yeah. And that—that's really, I think, for so many uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion committees or groups like you know groups like that. Oftentimes, that's the goal. It's—it's it's not to change everyone. It's yeah. to add to the already existing narrative. Yeah. And, and so, when I think about, I keep going back, of course, to your work as a musician and your life in music that I think music's a place where people can understand that piece. I, I think at, because most of us have some sense of how music evolves and that it did evolve and that it's always changing and that there's always pieces of cultures being added to what already exists. It, 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 am I off base here? I,
0: jump it. <laughs> no, you're, you're totally on base and I think a point that i'm i really strive for in my program is perspective. i think that perspective in all of this work and all levels of this work is really the most important element and it's sometimes difficult to tell someone a perspective that they don't want to hear. and especially since it's a perspective that happened like 400 years ago and they're like, "well, who are you to be telling me mm-hmm. what they thought or what they felt?" So, I don't Mm -hmm. because the Africans that lived in America at that time wrote songs. Mm -hmm. So, how about I just play you a song that they wrote and you tell me what they felt and you tell me what you think they were experiencing and you tell me what the situation was? That's why I say jazz is the oral history of the African experience in America. It was illegal for Africans to read and write, literacy was outlawed. So, you don't have documentation of our perspectives a lot of the time. It also necessarily wasn't a part of our culture because a lot of West Africa is a oral history culture anyway. <laughs> we had griots. And so if I play a song for someone that's from the perspective of someone who was enslaved and they can hear the pain in the music, they can hear the turmoil in their voice. Music has a way of making you feel and have a visceral reaction to it you reach people on a deeper level that you can open them up for conversation then in a different way than saying like, this is what happened. Like Mm -hmm. it's just a softer way and a more personal and intimate way to get the same point across.
1: Well, this brings me to uh, one of my last questions, which is for our listeners that want to understand more, uh, now, I know I you've got some Spotify playlists out there. Where would you recommend people start their jazz journey if, if they really want to understand the African experience and influence in the music? I mean,
0: they can always reach out and try my Growing Up Jazz program. I have not yet written a book on it. Everybody keeps telling me to. <laughs> um, I can't point them to a specific book or document that, has all of the information, although this one is pretty interesting. I have it right here. It's called Blues People. It's by Leroy Jones. This is uh, Negro music in white America. This is a very interesting book. Um, And it has some of that history um, in there. And the blues is what jazz is based off of. And jazz grew out of the blues for those that, that don't know that. So understanding the blues will help you to understand
1: jazz. Now, you mentioned uh, your program Growing Up Jazz. How can people reach you? How can they find out more about your program? Growingupjazz.com.
0: I do a keynote presentation with Q&A afterwards, and most companies will have me then um, come back and like do a workshop or work with their leadership team or help um, to implement, implement some DEI initiatives um, to follow up. Um, after their group has sort of imbibed this knowledge, um, I also have more for like schools and um, colleges. I actually haven't done the extended program with a business, but I suppose that I could, um, like a extended program that goes a course uh, s- across several weeks, where I actually get participants to write a song with me. Ooh. Yeah. And you don't need any musical training for the program. And I take them through the history of the rhythms, the melody, how melody is structured and the harmony. And then once they have that knowledge and the historical understanding that jazz is an oral history, you can look at jazz across decades and listen to it and know exactly which decade it came from because they're singing about What was happening in the world at that time? I say, okay, well, what's happening in the world right now that this particular group wants to write about? And I've had everything from, like, obviously racial justice to environmental issues to animal rights. Like, kids have come up with all sorts of great things that they want to write a song about. And then being able to structure and select um, the right kind of music to go with that and rhythms and harmonies based on what they've learned during the course has been really fun to do with them.
1: I would have loved that as a child. I would love that right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I, I could, I could do it with businesses. You don't need <laughs> to do right <laughs> Well, uh- This has been such a wonderful conversation and I did spend the weekend with your music and it is absolutely wonderful and delightful. So I cannot recommend it enough for our listeners. And Geroma it has been an absolute honor to talk with you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and talents with us this morning.
0: Thanks for having me on the show. And people can also find me every Saturday and Sunday on Sirius XM Real Jazz from 11 a.m. to
1: 5 p.m. Eastern oh excellent that will be my next one i'll see yeah. you next weekend <laughs> take care thanks andromeda bye-bye i'll get
0: excited when you hold me close so hold me baby and don't you let go